Thank you for listening to Remodeling Mastery by Mark G. Richardson, produced by Surefire Local. Over 50,000 people have listened to Mark's podcast series specifically for home improvement businesses. You can subscribe to this podcast on any mobile phone using iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mark Richardson, and welcome to Remodeling Mastery. Remodeling Mastery is a podcast series that's designed to really help you take your business to the next level. What I try to do is take topics that are thought-provoking, topics that are insightful, you know, adding some new color and new light to different things that you might find as common day-to-day things. This podcast series is produced by Surefire Local, a leading digital marketing group, as well as it's supported by two major organizations that I think are so important to this industry. The first is NARI, the National Association of the Remodeling Industry. You know, today more than ever, it's so important not to be out on islands by yourself. So I think the idea of joining an organization, creating those relationships, and really using that platform as a way to, quite frankly, not take as I'll talk about in a minute here, as many risks as you need to. The second is Professional Remodeler Magazine. And Professional Remodeler, you know, really is focused on, you know, what are those future, what are those leading edge, what are those issues out there that you need to be spending more time thinking about and really improving? So again, I thank both of those for supporting this podcast. Today, uh, I want to talk about a topic that You know, I was listening to another podcast series, a TED podcast series that was focused on the on the subject of risk. And as I listened to this and listened to the different experts that they brought on, talking about risk and the psychology of risk and what risk was all about, I thought it was very very relevant to uh, remodeling business leaders. Matter of fact, as I thought about all the different business leaders that I work with. You know, this whole subject of risk and how they look at risk really is, I think, one of the fundamental differentiators between those that uh, are, are more successful or more challenged within their business. And they used a term that I think I want to talk about and really try to unpack for the remodeling business. And that was not, not just risk tolerance, but risk intelligence. You know, what is your risk intelligence? Now, and understanding this topic, I think it, it really starts. So let's talk about the traditional way that we oftentimes think about risk. You know, we think about risk in terms of, for example, the investments that you do, whether it's your 401k or other types of investments. There's certain investments that are higher risk type of investments and lower risk. There's certain ones that are conservative versus aggressive. But I also think that your risk tolerance changes, I think, as you are younger versus older. I remember years ago when I was in my 30s, uh, I was taking a fair amount of risk when it came to some of the financial things I was doing. Whereas right now, when I look at kind of where I am in terms of my life and those kind of things, I tend to be a little bit more conservative. Or as I have shared, I think, and certainly have been thinking about in listening to this podcast, maybe I'm a little bit more risk intelligent now than I was before. So the first thing is don't just look at the spectrum of risk being a low risk tolerance versus high risk tolerance. Think about this whole theme of risk intelligence. 
And in this podcast, they cited many examples that I thought were kind of interesting. One was gamblers. You know, those gamblers out there, we oftentimes just immediately think someone that's going to Las Vegas and is a professional gambler is, in fact, uh, taking higher levels of risk. That's not necessarily the case. Um, There are many professional gamblers that do very well, and a big part of what they're managing is their risk intelligence. Uh, They are focused on very specific games that they know that there is probability and data out there that if they get better and better and make better decisions at it, they will see better returns. Or another example that they shared, they interviewed a solo rock climber. A solo rock climber is one that doesn't use a rope when he's climbing the rocks. And most people would think, wow, that's really crazy to do such a thing. But the reality is it's not that risky, as he pointed out, if in fact you study, you practice, and then you execute on what you practice. That's where I think that risk intelligence comes in. The third example I was thinking about, and I have a good friend who's a skydiver, and he actually, I think, would kind of uh, concur with this, is that, you know, in doing skydiving, if you do the right things and you have the right backups in place and you follow that process very rigidly, it's really a fairly low-risk type of thing. I mean, if you think about just even the concept of flying, you know, there's a reason, for example, when you're flying in airplanes commercially versus driving on the ground, it's actually lower risk or a higher level of risk intelligence that happens in, the, in a pilot or certainly in a plane than necessarily in a traditional driver. So with all that being said, how do we translate this into your business risk intelligence. So what I did was I created kind of a list of seven things. And just like my How Fit Is Your Business, where we look at the 10 criteria, kind of like going to the doctor and getting a fitness checkup. I think when it comes to risk intelligence, you can use some of the same methodology and really see how you measure up. So what I would encourage you to do is get out a pen or pencil And as I'm going through these things, try to score yourself, score yourself 10 being the highest and one being the lowest. And by doing so, what you're going to do or what you're going to find is that you're going to understand, I think, where you're taking maybe a little bit more risk and more importantly, whether that level of intelligence needs to be sharpened up. The other thing I would encourage is with some of your key team members, why don't you ask them the same questions or certainly extend on this podcast to them so they can score you. Because as I've really reflected on this, those businesses that are the best, the great ones are risk intelligent, not just high or low risk. And I think the more that you can focus on this subject, the better you'll be. So the first element I think you ought to think about is, do you focus on your sweet spot type of competence, sweet spot projects? sweet spot uh, is, is very much doing what you do best. I think, you, for example, if this is a type of project, if you're doing a lot of bathrooms, you know, when you look at the blend of all the bathrooms and that is where you think your sweet spot is, what percentage of your projects are bathrooms? What percentage are kitchens? What percentage of, of them are decks, if that's where your sweet spot is? And I would say those that are risk intelligence have probably 60% of what they do in their core business is within that 
sweet spot or that bullseye, so to speak, of the risk. So again, what I encourage you to do is score yourself in terms of your risk intelligence. Do you have the discipline to stay within that sweet spot for your business? The second one is, do you make decisions based on your gut or based on the data? Now, getting data can be kind of a painful exercise, and it's much more fun, I think, for many business leaders who are chasing shiny objects just to get out there and move very, very quickly on a particular idea. But the reality is, I think those that are risk intelligent like to balance those two. They may have 20% of it is their excitement and gut and their belief in themselves and their, their skills and kind of, quite frankly, looking to the future and their little crystal ball or, or their ability to predict certain things. And, but 80% of it is based on data. The data could be industry data. The data could be survey data from your client base or a new client base. This, the, the data in this case could be, you know, really measuring the economics of it and seeing what the cost of getting the leads for these particular type of interest or what the return would be in terms of gross profit. So really studying the data is a big, big part of, I think, making really good decisions. So number two, you score yourself based on the decisions based on gut versus data. And if, in fact, it's a high percentage of data, but still the gut is there, the subjective element's there, that's important too. The third is really wraps around your client base itself. You know, and the question I oftentimes see and I experience is I see remodelers oftentimes being a little bit desperate going after projects rather than hungry. And what is key to this theme here about focusing on the right client is that there's a high percentage of clients that allow you to do quite well, but then there's about 18 to 20% that won't allow you to make a profit. Now, I've talked about this in previous podcasts. I've written about this, you know, a right client checklist. But the question really is, are you being really more just hungry and smart about attracting the right clients? Or are you being a little bit more uh, desperate about it, just literally filling the pipeline? And I'd say those with the right level of risk intelligence are really focusing on the right client, not just a warm body for a client. Number four, uh, are your team members uh, put you at risk? Now, there's a lot of dimensions, I think, to this subject of team member risk, but I think you start with, you know, thinking about taking inventory of your team. You know, what are some of the personal baggage or personal risk with some of the team members? This could be aging out. This could be elements of health. There could be all sorts of elements that relate to I think the, the potential risk when it comes to your team members. But the flip side of it could also be their competencies. You know, are they investing in themselves in terms of staying current, either current in terms of technology or current in ter- terms of the skill sets that, that is really required? You know, I think that the most successful uh, uh, businesses out there, again, have the right level of risk intelligence when it comes to, you know, really seeing their people is their greatest assets. And those assets are, in fact, something that there is a level of risk if you don't manage and take care of those assets. Another one is how you focus on kind of the new things versus the known things. Now, 
it's not a question of whether you focus on new ideas, new innovations, new products, new services. The question really is how much time and energy do you put into those new things versus the mainstream of the known things? You know, I'm a big believer that it's always a good idea to spend a lot more time thinking something through before acting on it and taking really a risk. You might want to take an idea or a theme or a new relationship or a new product or service and kind of put it a little bit in an incubator for a while as opposed to necessarily just diving in and putting a lot of energy there. The entrepreneurial spirit needs to be intelligent, needs to be smart, not just with a lot of energy. So I think that's another criteria. The next one that I want to talk about is the right pace or the right, what we oftentimes look at, the right cadence in the business. Now, oftentimes leaders, remodeling leaders in business, they're working at a higher pace than the business can handle, than the key team members can handle. So I oftentimes have looked at, you know, what's the right level of growth on an annualized basis? And I've at least found in normalized times that if you can target between 10 and 20% growth, that that's what I would consider aggressive but realistic. It's not so slow that you're going to bore yourself or you're not going to lose market share, but it's also not so fast that you're going to let the rubber band snap and take a higher, too high of a level of risk. But when it comes to risk intelligence, there is the right level of risk. And I think the, the leader runs not only the what it is you're trying to do, but also the pace at which you're trying to do it and what that makes the most sense. The last one I want to talk a little bit about, and that is the ROI or what your runway is, so to speak. Uh, I had a former partner used to talk about, you know, what's the runway on this idea? In other words, how long do we have and how much is it going to cost and what's our return on investment based on the level of risk? Now, if you go into anything that you're doing with an, in an intelligent way, taking those kind of things into account, the chances are you're going to make better decisions. For example, it might be that you're investing in a new team member. It might be a new product and service. It might be a new strategic alliance out there. Each one of these will have a runway. And what that runway is, is a length of time that you'll see that ROI. For example, I oftentimes talk to leaders out there, say, gosh, if I just had another salesperson or two, I oftentimes say, well, what is, in fact, the learning curve? What is the runway, so to speak, of that person moving on board to, to ultimately getting you to the place that you get an ROI? You know, in the remodeling business, oftentimes that could be a six-month, 12-month, even a two-year learning curve or seeing that runway be that long. So you need to at least, when you're making your decisions, take into account, I think, that as a level of risk to make the right decisions. So again, I just want to have you think about this subject. I want to see how you measure up. And as I said at the beginning, as I've reflected more and more about this simple theme and concept of risk intelligence, those that are making a lot of money, that are sleeping at night, that are moving forward aggressively, have a high degree of risk intelligence, which, as I said earlier, is not high or low level of tolerance for risk. It's really more about the right level 
and the right way to look at risk and the right, right way to integrate it into your decision process. So again, uh, stay tuned. We have a great Remodeling Thought Leader interview coming up, and I look forward to speaking to you soon. I want to thank everybody for listening to Remodeling Mastery, but just as much I want to thank those that support this particular series. Now, first and foremost, I want to encourage you not just to listen, but to subscribe. And for those people that subscribe to this podcast or actually reach out to my producers, Surefire, a leading digital marketing organization, you'll actually receive a copy of one of my books that will help you take your business to the next level. This podcast series is actually supported by Professional Remodeler. Professional Remodeler is committed to help you understand and crack the code on your business. So I encourage you to try to spend the time reading the magazine and reach out to them and be a little bit more of a voice in the industry. I also encourage you to get involved, get engaged. The National Association of Remodeling Industry, NERI, is a wonderful organization that I've been involved with with most of my career and actually had so many opportunities as a result of that. And lastly, certainly, reach out to my friends at Surefire Local that will be able to help you with your business. Welcome back. I'm your host, Mark Richardson, and at Remodeling Mastery, we try to do not only some special insights about a particular topic, but also conduct a interview with a thought leader. Uh, today's thought leader, who's been a regular guest on Remodeling Mastery, is Kermit Baker. Kermit is the chief economist with the American Institute of Architects, as well as heads up the Remodeling Futures program at Harvard University. Uh, typically, we have Kermit come on and, you know, share some of the kind of what the stars and planets out, are out there. But since you know, he was on the show last time. We thought we'd not only talk about certainly similar things, but we talk about how things have adjusted and changed. So I guess, Kermit, first of all, welcome to uh, Remodeling Mastery. And, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit first on, you know, the last time that you were on Remodeling Mastery was four or five months ago. And we were talking about, you know, moving into uh, 2020. Now we're in 2020. And, you know, it, it seems like we've seen a little bit of shift in some of our thinking, some of our forecasts uh, for this year. What uh, maybe we'll talk about some of those changes. Mark, um, great to be back with you again. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about where the industry seems to be he heading. And, and for the last, you know, I would say 18 to 24 months, we've been talking about a slowdown in the industry. Um, Probably not too surprising because we've had seven, eight years of good, healthy growth on a mid-single digit range or so. And I think probably the odds were that something was going to uh, uh, cause a bit of a slowdown here. What, what we're seeing now is, is this slowdown continuing to some extent, but you know, the floor under this slowdown just got raised a little bit, I think. And, and, and we, see, um, we, we see healthier growth at sort of the trough of the market now than we saw even uh, the last time we talked three or four months ago. And, and I think what's going on is uh, basically we've seen uh, quite surprisingly uh, interest rates, mortgage rates decline when everyone was expecting them to, uh, um, um, to go up again. And that's given a little boost to the housing market. So we're seeing housing starts, for example, pick up in 
2018 nationally, we built uh, one, one and a quarter million housing starts, 1.25 million. In 2019, we were up to almost 1.3 million. In the fourth quarter of 2019, we were up well above 1.4 million uh, housing starts. So uh, clearly, they're moving uh, uh, opposite of the broader economy, that we're seeing strength there when we're seeing kind of a general slowdown in the, in the broader economy. And I think that, that that increase we're seeing in housing starts is lifting house prices. Um, it's, it, 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 it's getting the housing market moving again, and I think that's going to indirectly benefit um, home improvement spending. And so we expect to see, you know, like I say, slower growth uh, in 2020, uh, percent and a half, maybe 2%. But I think coming on the heels of what we've seen, um, that's really got to be considered a pretty healthy number and, and, and a pretty pretty good development for the industry. So one of the dynamics that I always find interesting when I'm listening to folks like yourself, but others that kind of really study the indicators, it's fairly common, Kermit, they are looking at the impact of interest rates, but very quickly behind that, they also bring up the topic of unemployment rates. How, when we hook those two together, does it especially create, you know, a very favorable environment? Yeah, we've got, we've really got double-barreled uh, uh, strong, strong numbers here with interest rates, largely because inflation has been very modest. We're seeing interest rates stay at very low levels, and we're seeing some of the lowest unemployment rate, you know, we've, nationally we've seen in the last several decades, last 50 years. We're well under 4% now. So, um, you know, it's, it's a good combination of uh, employment rates are low, so wages are going up. Um, and, and people would be thinking about buying homes. And when they go out and check the market, they see that even though prices are up, cost of financing that purchase is, is, is very favorable. So I think it is giving a, a, a boost to that. And, and I think by the same token for uh, home improvement projects, too, that they're, 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 they're seeing that with the price of their home up, they suddenly have some equity that they can, number one, use to finance a home improvement project. Or number two, just kind of feel more comfortable about a, about a buffer. I can undertake that project because if things go bad, I have a lot of equity in my home and I can, I, I can turn to that if I need to, if, um, if, if I run into other issues. So let's talk a little bit about headwinds or even potential headwinds over the course of the next, let's say, three, six, nine months out there. What are some of those headwinds that could, in fact, kind of slow down this what appears to be pretty positive kind of forecast? Well, I think it's kind of the flip side of the issues we just were talking about, Mark. So I, I talked about a healthy housing market, uh, good solid uh, construction numbers, uh, good solid house prices. Uh, house prices have been going up at about 5% per year uh, recently. Even with this strong jobs market, uh, wages are not going up, incomes are not going up at 5% per year. So suddenly people are paying, you know, forced to pay more for, uh, for, for, for buying a home. And we're seeing affordability really, really uh, become a, a serious issue in a lot of markets across the country and a growing number of uh, markets across the country. There was a national survey that was done about nine months ago that asked a, sort of a cross-section of the population um, you know, whether affordability, housing affordability, was a problem in their local area. Um, and and 73% of the respondents said, yes, it is a problem. I think that's a cause of concern. Even more of a cause of concern 
is that 60% of respondents said affordability is a serious problem in my area. So uh, that, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, that was a problem in coastal California, maybe other Pacific Coast markets and along the Northeast seaboard, but kind of limited to those areas. Now we're seeing it spread to more areas are really facing affordability issues than aren't. And, and that's going to uh, ultimately, I think, make it difficult for, for households to undertake projects. Let me, let, me, let me quickly mention a few others. One is that uh, millennials, um, although more likely to get engaged in home ownership than they, than they would have two or three or four years ago, still are becoming uh, homeowners in, in disturbingly uh, small numbers, I think. Um, you know, I think a lot of them will eventually, but in, in the meantime, they're not pushing the, uh, the market ahead as much as, as, as folks had hoped. And that's generally leading to, to lower mobility across the country. And mobility does, in general, uh, produce home improvement activity. You move into a home, you undertake a new set of home improvement projects. So um, if households are, are sitting tight, that's not a good trend for the, for the industry. So kind of moving towards potentially just some uh, challenges or issues that aren't necessarily kind of uh, big economic trends or key indicators, uh, what are some of those potential challenges or issues that you think could kind of push things off track a little bit? Well, let me repeat two. One is that mobility rates are still very low. Uh, number two is this big surge of millennials are very slow getting into the market. Let me mention a couple other ones, too. And one is, a, one is a, a, an age-old issue. We've, we've been facing this for five years, but we haven't cracked the nut yet. And that's the labor problem um, that, that we're dealing with. And I have a sense that's going to get worse, too. Uh, I mean, one of the advantages, if you will, of a, of a downturn in home improvement activities that would free up a lot of labor. Um, one of the, I think, the downsides of a strong housing market is home builders, I think, are going to suck a lot of labor out of the market that used to go into remodeling. I think a lot of remodelers would rather, uh, particularly, especially subcontractors, might prefer to work for a home builder where they're guaranteed for, you know, six, nine, 12 months work on a project as opposed to three or four or five days on a, on a, on a home improvement project. So I, th- I think we're going we're gonna to see uh, more competition coming from home builders. In, in terms of labor, we're going to continue to see inflation in material prices. Even though, even though we're not seeing inflation in the broader economy, um, it, it costs a lot more to undertake a home improvement project because of material costs. And, and again, I think we're going to start hitting up against affordability limits. Love to do that project, but there's only so much I'm prepared to pay for it. And I think we're, we're, we're going to start hitting those limits fairly soon. I think one other issue that I'm kind of feeling out there too, Kermit, and if you want to comment on it, that would be great. And that is, it just seems like that things are potentially a little bit fragile. And I'm not sure I'm feeling that because there's just no kind of more bigger trends that are pushing us off track, but it could be related to the political environment. It could be related to uh, certainly a, a virus or war or some of the, some of the global issues that, you know, I, I think if there is a threat, it's, it's something that could happen out there that, quite frankly, isn't something that you or I would predict. But, uh, you know, it at least tells me in terms of advising folks, you know, when, when things are good and looking good, it's kind of a make hay time. You want to 
book the business. You want to move it forward. You want to work a little bit harder to, to, to kind of build a little bit more of a backlog because if, you know, literally three or four months from now, something happens, that backlog could just vaporize on you. And then all of a sudden, what could have been a very good year doesn't look like a good year. Any comments yeah, on that? I think you're exactly right, Mark. Uh, I mean, I think you and I and, and others, when we sit in this housing bubble, things look pretty rosy. Um, but I think if you get outside of that bubble for, for a minute, you see a lot of potential risks out there. Um, you know, n- n- number one is, um, you know, the economy grew at a, a, you know, in 2018 about 2.7, 2.8%. Last year grew about 2.3%. This year projected to grow under, under 2%. That's not a lot of margin for something going wrong. The manufacturing sector of our economy, about 25% of overall economic activity appears to be in recession now, appears to be in declining. So we've got fewer and fewer sources of, of, of genuine, uh, generating continued growth. And as you say, when, when we have growth at those, you know, respectable but not terribly strong levels, it doesn't take an awful lot to go wrong before it tips it over into the negative side. And, you know, is, are there risks of, of, you know, political issues? Are there risks of international issues, health issues, a lot of things that, you know, kind of oil shortages or, or, or other things, you know, those are there. I, I think they're pretty much always there to some extent, but I think now it's, you know, we, how much could we absorb of that and still keep the economy afloat? And I think the answer is a lot less than we could absorb last year or the year before that. That's an excellent point. So it's really more about what can we take more than it is, whether it's really any different. So again, I want to thank Kermit Baker. He's a the chief economist with the American Institute of Architects, uh, as well as heads up the Remodeling Futures Program at Harvard University. And Kermit will come on again, hopefully, and we'll continue to give you some, you know, positive news moving forward. But uh, in the interim, I hope everybody uh, finds the discussions and the insights interesting, and we will speak to you again soon. Take care. If you liked what you've heard, take a moment to subscribe to Remodeling Mastery on your phone using your favorite podcast app. It's available on all the major apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Go ahead and post in the comments what you learned and any questions you have for Mark, and he may answer them on an upcoming episode. Thank you again for listening to Remodeling Mastery by Mark G. Richardson.